From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Get a sold sign ready. Best if you can find one in blue and orange. The Denver Broncos have a buyer. Who they are, what they stand to get for their money, and did they get a good deal? We'll ask a sports business reporter and hear from former Bronco and Super Bowl champion Ryan Harris. Then the embattled Adams County Sheriff is up for re-election. His office is under criminal investigation. Our own reporters have been investigating. We'll hear from them and from the sheriff himself. If I could go back and do things different, I probably, not probably, I would do things different. And later, the Denver Gay Men's Chorus highlights a century of the LGBTQ experience. What you say matters, but what you do matters more. What you want matters. Hi, my name is Jacob and I'm from Greeley, Colorado. I decided to donate because I commute from Greeley to Fort Collins every day for work. So the second that I get in the car, I turn on Colorado Public Radio and I get to listen to whatever's on the news or whatever musical selection is going on that day. It's a great way for, as a new Coloradan, to learn about the state, and it's also a great way to stay informed on what's going on out there. Members make the news reporting and music programming possible. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. In recent years, the Denver Broncos have been almost an afterthought in the National Football League. That is no longer the case. After adding star quarterback Russell Wilson in March, word now of an even bigger score, the sale of the team to the heirs of the Walmart fortune. Now the Broncos are the talk of the league. Sports reporter, business, uh, sports business reporter, that is, Eben Novi williams is back with us from Sportico. Hi, Eben. I didn't think it would be this soon we'd be talking again. Amazing how quickly this happened, huh, Ryan? Yeah. Well, you tell me. I guess you're amazed. I am. Yeah. It's it's funny. The the this whole process really dates back years ago. The the entire industry, the the bankers, the lawyers, the investors have all known the Broncos were going to be, be be sold. It was years plus of, of legal fights just to get to this point. And even the early part of the sale process kind of took a little bit longer than I think some people were were thinking. And then. Boom. 24 hours after the second round bids are due, (laughs) there's a signed agreement and and Rob Walton is getting the team. It just shows that there's a lot of lead up sometimes. But once the rubber hits the road and the bids start coming in, sometimes these processes can be fairly quick. The Walton Penner family, along with investor and Starbucks board chair Melody Hobson, apparently bid four point six five billion dollars. NFL owners have to approve. Um. Assuming they do, what exactly does one get when one buys a football team? You get entrance into a very, very elite club, for for one. Two, you get an asset that is almost guaranteed to spin off a hundred plus million dollars of cash every single year. Hmm. And if the past couple decades are an indication, you also get an asset that in addition to spinning off that cash is going to appreciate uh, at an insane rate. If you look at just the last few NFL sales eight years ago, the Buffalo Bills sold for $1.4 billion. Now here we are, the Broncos sold for $4.6 billion. The, the, the appreciation of these franchises has happened so rapidly in the past decade. A lot of people think that's going to continue. 
So you get, uh, again, access to this club. You get an asset that's going to give you a lot of cash on, on a yearly basis. And in some ways, if, if you sell it again in 20 years or 30 years or your kids inherit it or your grandkids inherit it, it's probably going to be worth a whole lot more when they get it than it did when you bought it. And this is uh, potentially generational, this ownership. I recall when you were on last time, Eben, that you thought it might go for more. Is this a bargain? It's interesting. I think the the reason I think it didn't go for more is because Rob is, and, and I say this knowing that we're talking about very wealthy people no matter what, mm-hmm. Rob is so wealthy and he's so much wealthier than everybody else. I know that some of these other groups like Josh Harris, like the Clear Lake Capital co-founders, they understood very early on. Rob is worth 60 plus billion dollars. If he really wants this team and is willing to get in a bidding war for it, I'm not going to win that bidding war. And something interesting that that, that, that crossed our, uh, that, that we were hearing in the past week is that there, there's a good chance that some of these bidders are going to want the next NFL team. And they're thinking in the back of their head, if I get into a bidding war with Rob Walton and we get it up to 4.9 and then he buys the team at 4.9, I'm now setting a comp for the next team that I might want to buy in the future. Oh. So a lot of these guys, I think, realized, I don't want to be the stalking horse on this. I'm not going to win this bidding war. And in some ways, I could be making it more difficult or more expensive for me in the future to buy the next NFL team. So I, I think this could have gone higher if... Rob was not involved, perhaps. And I I know that's weird to say, just because I think he had a cooling process on the whole thing, just because, again, he's so much wealthier than any other NFL owner or anyone else involved in this Broncos process specifically, that I think the writing has been on the wall for a while. When the team went on the market, the NFL said it would love for the new owner to be a person of color. Uh, Rob Walton's statement specifically mentions Melody Hobson of Ariel Investments and Starbucks joining the ownership group. She is African-American. Announcing her feels very much by design. Do you think that's true, Evan? Yeah, I think that's that's right in some ways. The, the, this was a, a complicated sale in that it was being conducted by by Pat Bowen's estate, in which case you don't have all the same typical levers and, ch- and choices you have when you sell a team. Very often, if, if it's me selling the team, uh, I can choose. I, I don't want to sell it to this person. I want to sell it to that person. I don't care if they're not bidding as much money. I like this ownership group more. A lot of that goes out the window during an estate sale. That that said, the NFL made it very clear to, I think, anyone who was interested in buying the Broncos that they wanted minority ownership, at least in a, in, 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 in some uh, in an LP position in this process. Melody, everything I have not met her, everything I've heard from her about her in the past 24 hours is fantastic. It seems very clearly that she is also someone who is going to bring a lot of uh, a wealth of knowledge and a lot of experience and a lot of contacts to this ownership group as well. So so I'm, it was definitely a priority for the NFL, definitely a priority for the Waltons. And it seems very clear that 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 through an extensive business history, you mentioned she's the, the chair chair of the, the Starbucks board. She's a director at JP Morgan Chase. She 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 helps run her own investment firm. There's there's a lot of reasons why she's also, I think, a, a perfect person to have in discussions at NFL owners meetings as well. And just uh, by way of context, the team had to be sold to the highest bidder. Uh, Rob Walton notes in his statement, by the way, that he has lived and worked in Colorado and, quote, always admired the Broncos, which he calls a great organization in a vibrant community full of opportunity and passionate fans. There were four finalists, each reportedly reached out to former quarterback Peyton Manning. And there was talk he might be an advisor. Any indication he's actually a part of the deal? 
from what I've been told, he is not, at least not right now. Okay. Oftentimes what we see is is deals get done and then they bring in some some more minority partners. That is certainly possible moving forward. Again, the, the fact that Rob has this much money means that he can finance this uh, by himself if, if he wants to. Obviously, Melody is is contributing here as well, but it's not as though Rob needs people to come in to kind of deflate, to, to deflect some of the financial burden of buying this team. So remains to be seen. I would not be shocked if Peyton Manning ends up as part of this group at some point. I would not be shocked if Peyton Manning does not end up as part of this group <laughs> at some point. I, again, I think just because of the the way in which the, the way in which Rob's deep pockets are, are make it easy for him to pay in cash and to do this largely by himself, I think makes it a little bit easier for him just to say no to potential limited partners. It's also people like Peyton Manning, John Elway. We saw this with, with Magic Johnson, the Dodgers. They often serve a very public purpose in the auction process. And obviously Rob did not need that to get this deal done. So in some ways, yeah, I, I think it, from what I understand, Peyton is not part of this, but there is certainly a chance that he would be a part of this moving forward. I appreciate that you're covering your bases, but that's invoking a, di- <laughs> a different sport. Um, okay, 24, I think, of the 32 NFL owners have to approve this. Uh, just briefly, in a few seconds, is that pro forma at this point? A hundred percent pro uh-huh. forma. This is the this is the dream owner for the NFL. They got one of the richest men in the world. This is an, an auto stamp, rubber stamp through. An auto stamp. Eben, thank you so much for being with us again. Thanks for having me. Eben Novi Williams on a purchase agreement to buy the Denver Broncos. Chris, the sale of the Broncos affects more than the boardroom. Fans and players wonder what's in store. That includes sports broadcaster, author, and former Bronco Ryan Harris. I asked for his reaction. Big news for Denver fans. Uh, Finally, you have a leader at the helm who can tell people exactly what they want. I mean, think about this. Everybody works at a company, and if you didn't have a CEO or a founder, how much would be missing in that leadership message? So the number one thing is the Denver Broncos have a leader at the key position, not quarterback, but owner. And that's going to help them to not only build the future, but this deal also brings stability to the Denver Broncos franchise. Rob Walton's including, as a part of the ownership group, his daughter, Carrie Walton Penner. That's going to make sure that no matter what happens in the future, that the family of the Waltons is going to own this Broncos franchise. And as much as we love small businesses and support small businesses, the NFL is in the family businesses business. They want to know that this asset will continue to grow and be valuable no matter what variable changes in the ownership group. Hmm. Well, I, I was going to ask if this matters to players, to the people on the field. Uh, it sounds like it will. Absolutely. You can tell as a player when you walk in the door what the ownership situation is like, how it impacts the franchise. For an example, uh, the late Pat Bolin said we wanted to be first in everything. And when you walk into the Denver Broncos facilities, they are the best in the NFL because they're the first in facilities, they're the first in stays, they're the first in travel, they're the first in preparation, and then you better be first at the end of the season. Mm. And that expectation, it can be created and felt in every aspect of a player's day-to-day activities. So a huge difference, and this is going to affect the roster too. If Rob Walton walks in and says, hey, I want to make sure that this player is on the team, that player is going to be on the team. And if Rob Walton wants to build a stadium with his brother-in-law and Rob and Stan Kroenke, Guess what? He's going to be able to do that with Stan Kroenke. So a lot of things are going to be felt by the players just because they have an owner now 
this is in many ways a real estate deal as well as a sports deal. Uh, so I appreciate you uh, mentioning that. Do we need a new stadium? <laughs> I mean, it depends on who you ask. Yeah, I've been, I've luckily been to the eighth wonder of the world that is the Los Angeles Rams stadium um, built by Denver's own Stan Kroenke, owner of the Nuggets and Avalanche. And the answer is yes, if you look at that stadium. And one of the big things that teams are looking at, it's not just the stadium, it's how much usage can you get. And right now, even though Mile High is one of the greatest stadiums in the NFL, I know from playing in all the stadiums in the NFL, it has a low usage rate. Compared to when I was at the Houston Texans, they had a dome. Not only did they have a rodeo, they had Disney on ice. There was not a weekend where there wasn't an event there. And so what the, what the NFL and NFL owners want are higher usage rates. And to get a higher use, you need a dome here in Denver. To get a Super Bowl, you need a new stadium. And these are all things that Rob Walton can do with just signing a check and one decision in one day. A dome. What do you want to know about this deal that you don't know right now, Ryan Harris? What I want to know is the involvement of Rob Walton. I mean, he's going to be 78 here coming up. That's not no spring chicken. And what reason does he have to own a team? Does he want to have it as a badge of honor? Is this a statement? Or does he want to bring another championship to a city that loves to win? And does he want to prolong and grow this organization for his daughter and his son-in-law and for the Walton family? So that's the, what I want to know. What's, what's the reasoning behind why you wanted to be an owner of an NFL team? Is, was it to throw money around and show that you're one of the wealthiest people in the world? Well, you can mark that off the checklist. And as all of us know here in Denver, the Denver Broncos mean a lot more than just a team that plays on Sundays. Denver Broncos are in the Boys and Girls Club here in Montbello, are out in the community all the time, have done a lot to support the Alzheimer's walk here in town and more. So we want to make sure, and I would love to know, what's the plan, Stan? What's the plan, Rob? What are we going to do here moving forward? And why did you want to be an owner? Before we go, you talked about the Bolin family, that the NFL appreciates a, a family business that has some longevity, some generational quality to it. I, one could argue that didn't work well for the Bolins. I mean, why is the Walton Penner family different? Just because of the pockets here? Well, I think the Walton Penner family really has experience uh, in owning franchises as well. I mean, uh, Stan Kroenke is a brother-in-law of Rob Walton. He owns the, the Los Angeles Rams. They just won a Super Bowl. The Colorado Avalanche are in the Stanley Cup Finals now. So you have a, a family that is used to owning an auxiliary large entity like that. And to my knowledge, outside of the business that Pat Bowling was in, there were not multiple entities that he had experience in in owning. And let's be clear as well. The, the NFL changed dramatically and a large part of it because of Pat Bowling, creating the Sunday afternoon game, creating the Sunday night game. Mm. And those things have changed the NFL rapidly. We haven't even gotten to words like Twitter and Instagram and streaming yet. So this is a very different landscape than when Pat Bowen bought the Denver Broncos. And it's a landscape that the Walton family has experience in and successful experience in as a family. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thank you. Super Bowl champion, former Bronco and broadcaster Ryan Harris. He's also the author of Mindset for Mastery, an NFL champion's guide to reaching your greatness.
It's primary season, ballots are going out, and while races for governor and Congress get most of the attention, there's an intriguing local race in Adams County, just north of Denver. The sheriff there is Rick Reigenborn. He is seeking re-election in the midst of a criminal investigation into his office after some questionable hiring decisions and following several attention-grabbing incidents. CPR's Allison Sherry and Ben Marcus laid out those episodes and more this week on air and online. They'll join me in just a moment. First, a bit of their ride-along with the incumbent sheriff. On a recent Friday night, Sheriff Richard Reigenborn is doing one of the things he seems to love most about being a cop, driving fast. Reigenborn has his department-issued Chevy Tahoe going 110 miles per hour expertly darting in and out of traffic on I-76. I'm sweating in the front seat, holding the microphone. There's some bumps, I'm trying to slow down. No, you're, bumps, you're good, don't down. worry about us, we're fine. And I'm in the back, fixated nervously on the speedometer. I think this is the fastest I've ever been in a car. We're on a ride along with Reigenborn, who at the moment is responding to a call of shots fired. When we get to the scene in an industrial section of Adams County near Commerce City, there isn't much going on. Sounds like they may have just been shooting into the air. It was during that ride-along of all times that Allison and Ben got a chance to talk with the sheriff. They also spoke in his office, and they sat down with me. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks. Why did you decide to do this story? Well, I originally got a tip several months ago about a criminal investigation in Sheriff Rick Reigenborn's office in Adams County about a few top commanders who were there. Um, they're now ex-commanders. There were some criminal allegations into wrongdoing. There was some reporting at the time about this, but no one had really reported what happened, which was there's a whistleblower who was accusing the undersheriff and the then division chief of training of falsifying their training records, which is a pretty big deal in law enforcement. So that launched Ben and I onto this bigger story about the sheriff himself, how he got there and everything else going on in the 600 plus person agency in the state's fifth largest county. What did you find out about the sheriff and, and tell me about him? The first time that I had uh, remember hearing anything about him was he Facebook live streamed a chase in which he engaged as a sheriff in this chase and eventually arrested somebody on camera. Uh, this made a lot of headlines locally. When we interviewed him at his office, the first thing I noticed was this shrine to Captain America right behind his desk. He's got comics, he's got posters, all of this stuff. And there's this excerpt from a Teddy Roosevelt speech, Man in the Arena, as you first walk in, that's on his door. He's lived in Adams County his whole life. He didn't go to college. He apprenticed as a diesel mechanic. It was a police ride-along, the Brighton PD that changed his life. And he ended up volunteering time to work patrol after that, sometimes up to 30 hours a week. So he really loved being out on patrol. Uh, When he takes office in 2018, his first act is to walk the senior commanders out of the agency, put them on administrative leave. He then replaced them with these guys who are now under investigation for possibly falsifying training records. Sheriff Reigenborn says that they had bullied him, uh, these commanders that he had walked out, that they had created a toxic culture. Some of these guys went to high school together. These are old rivalries that go back to the 80s. Uh, These commanders are suing, saying that they were walked out as punishment for supporting Reigenborn's opponent in the election. Reigenborn disputes that. Some command staff and above were walked out um, until we could figure out what the organization is going to look like. I think you have to take control 
of the agency, and you have to know who's going to be loyal to the agency. Loyalty is really important to Reigenborn. Um, you know, I think he learned that quite a bit in the first few years that maybe impulsive decision making doesn't always yield the best results in law enforcement. You know, his current undersheriff, for example, was a supporter of his opponent. And he demoted him right when he got there because he didn't like people who supported his opponent. And that guy has now worked his way up and is now number two in the office. If I could go back and do things different, I probably, not probably, I would do things different. Um, Because some of the people that I thought I couldn't trust, um, I absolutely can. Most county sheriffs rise through the ranks, but that didn't happen here. How did he become sheriff? So Reigenborn is a longtime patrol sergeant. Uh, He wanted to be command staff, had tested, but couldn't break through. He said that that was part of the good old boys club, that if you were in that clique, that you could be promoted, but he wasn't getting promoted. So he runs for sheriff. An elected office. Mm -hmm. He can just go completely around the command staff and become the top guy. But first, in 2014, he loses to Mike McIntosh who wins and serves uh, until 2018. Reigenborn goes off to teach community driving school. Uh, He's a part-time detective at Mountain View in the meantime. And he's thinking of running again in 2018 against McIntosh. But first he meets with Sheriff McIntosh, the sitting sheriff. And And he told me, he said, if you make me a lieutenant, I'll come back to the organization and I will not run against you. McIntosh said he was not interested. Reigenborn had, according to McIntosh, a spotty reputation in the department, had multiple affairs in the office, an out-of-wedlock child. But this was the midterm elections. While Donald Trump was president, there was a blue wave. Reigenborn's a Democrat, and he wins easily. Yeah, I mean, I think he fundamentally ran because he didn't like the way he was treated. Um, He wanted a higher position. He's trying to change the culture in the office now. And depending on who you talk to, he's either been effective at changing that culture or it's been a little dramatic in the first few years because of all of the changes he's made with with the positions at the top. I mean, aside from the kind of good old boys club, what is it about Reigenborn that kept him from advancing in his career before becoming sheriff? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because he was there for a long time. He's obviously been loyal to the office. We heard from a number of people who have known him for decades that he's sort of gotten in his own way in terms of securing promotions. Back when he was on patrol, he actually threatened a former sheriff with a lawsuit because he didn't feel like he was getting under the SWAT team fast enough. I mean, you know, can you imagine like threatening your jo- your boss of the lawsuit if you didn't get the promotion? We, we don't really do that. You know, most people don't do that. When he was a sergeant on patrol, he got in trouble with his direct supervisor because he was spending too much time in bars on his shift. One former commander we interviewed said he spent a lot of time in adult establishment bars in particular. Reigenborn says this is partially true. He thought the bars, particularly at closing time, were magnets for crime. and But he was fighting with his superior about this. At one point, he was banned from going to the bars on his shift. So you can kind of see that there were some episodes through the years that sort of kept him from getting those promotions. He wasn't a hugely popular guy all the time. So he was essentially at strip clubs on his shift, but he said that was to to root out crime. Yeah, I think he'd say there's documented evidence that police presence in areas reduces crime. So, you know, is there going to be a burglary at a place when there's a, a uniformed officer standing in the back? Probably not. What does this mean for the residents of Adams County, by the way, whose ballots are hitting the mail? Well, there's the potential for a large settlement of taxpayer money to the commanders who allege they were unfairly fired simply for supporting his opponent in the last election. 
what's interesting, and I didn't realize this before we started reporting this, but there's a history of politically motivated firings in the sheriff's office in Adams County. Three of the last sheriffs now have been sued over it. Two uh, settlements have come out of that, totaling about $2.5 million in two different cases to a whole bunch of people. Uh, This is a history in Adams County that we don't see in other sheriff's offices in the metro area. Hmm. Um, Impact on operations of the department is hard to gauge. Um, There's so much going on with policing in the pandemic era post George Floyd to try to pull apart, you know, our deputies leaving because of Reigenbohr and his crime rising because of Reigenbohr. We just, there's no way to kind of pull that apart. But on reputation, we talked to lots of people who worried that the agency's reputation has taken a hit. You reported that Reigenborn replaced a bunch of top leaders in the first few weeks with some problematic replacements. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, you know, I'll talk real quickly about Mickey Bethel, um, who he put in charge of the Flat Rock Regional Training Center. It's a training facility. I was pretty well respected when Bethel took over anyway. Um, Bethel was had a history. Uh, he was at the Pueblo Police Department. He was charged with crimes in 2006 connected to a sex tape he made with his wife and another man. He was acquitted, but he was fired from Pueblo. He landed as the chief of the troubled Rocky Ford Police Department. Um, there are a lot of a lot of stories about Rocky Ford. Then he came to Adams County. He is the one who's accused of logging on to a police training program and pretending to be under Sheriff Tommy McClellan and doing the training for him. You know, like other licensed jobs, training is extremely important. You have to have a certain number of hours every year to keep your license, and that's a very big thing. If you are logging on as someone else and doing their training hours for them, whether you're a doctor or a law enforcement officer, that's an that's, issue. A problem, yeah. right? That's a problem. That's illegal. It's it's criminal activity. That's why the CBI is investigating. Right now, his police license is under review due to the criminal investigation. We reached out to Bethel. He's fifty four years old. He said the fact that my police license status is retired under while under investigation is of absolutely no interest to me whatsoever at this stage of my life. And McClellan, who Allison was talking about, uh, came from Walsenburg, a very small police department before that. Fowler, Colorado, a very small. I had to look Fowler up on a map to even know where it was. It's just outside Rocky Ford. Um, Tommy McClellan was, I think, completely overwhelmed in that role. He was the number two at that agency. It's much larger than anything he had managed. Chris Laws is another commander that Reigenborn put in charge, in this case in the jail. Um, Chris Laws was given a summons for trespassing by the Thornton Police Department in a domestic dispute. There's another guy who was put in charge of patrol. He was charged with excessive force back before when he was a police officer in Westminster. His name's Mark Toth. He was exonerated, but he went to a much smaller place um, in Mountain View. He was plucked out of there to run the patrol division in Adams County. He and Ragenborn have since parted ways. Another commander who's still up there, who's still head of patrol, his name is John Bitterman, was convicted of careless driving resulting in death when he drove through a stop sign in 2020 and hit another car and killed an 85-year-old woman. On duty. On duty. And he's now still the head of patrol at Adams County. And these are all folks that Reigenborn brought on. What is happening now? 
So the primaries are going on now. Uh, you should have gotten your ballot or will be getting it soon. Election day is June 28th. The Republican, Mike McIntosh, is running uh, in a primary. If he survives that Republican primary, he will face off against Reigenborn if he survives the Democratic primary. This would be the third time Reigenborn and McIntosh will face off for this office. It's Shakespearean. <laughs> it is. They went to high school together. 30 plus years ago at Brighton High School, uh, and they're still going at it well into their 50s and 60s. How do you think what you've uncovered will affect the race? Well, that's a good question. You know, I don't think a lot of people do a lot of research into sheriffs in general. There is a sheriff in every county in the state. How many people know all could you, about could you their name sheriffs? Yours, could you even? name your sheriff? Uh-huh. They're generally low-information races. We hope that our work and our reporting over several weeks and talking to dozens of people, you know, helps inform the voters of Adams County about these characters running for office up there. Um, you know, but I think sheriff's races are generally just to make a general statement, are low information. You know, people don't do the extensive research. I think party, like, waves matter. You know, I think Reigenborn won because he had a D next to his name in a Democratic year. He would even say that. I think that that was a pretty big advantage to him. So I don't think we know exactly how this is going to play out. You know, we just published our story. We're getting a lot of feedback. Um, We'll see. Okay. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry and investigative reporter Ben Marcus. Read their investigation at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner, and Colorado Matters continues in just a bit on CPR News and KRCC. are out for this year's primary election in Colorado, and nearly everyone gets to participate. Republicans, Democrats, unaffiliated. Who's running? What are the issues? How do you cast your vote? I'm Megan Verlee from the CPR Newsroom. Find out what you need to know to fill out your ballot online at CPR.org. And on Tuesday, June 28th, hear full coverage of the primary here on CPR News and on the Colorado Public Radio app. To live in Colorado is to have a front row seat to natural disasters, wildfires, tornadoes, floods, hailstorms. But there's one phenomenon Coloradans are left to wonder about, earthquakes. Where are the fault lines in Colorado and where can we expect seismic activity, if any? That is Louise Watson, who lives in Bailey. She's one of several folks to reach out on this topic through Colorado Wonders, where your curiosity about the state drives our reporting. And this time, it drove me to Golden, home of the National Earthquake Information Center, where I met up with seismologist William Yeck in April. We're on the School of Mines campus, part of the Geologic Hazard Science Center, uh, which is a USGS center. And in here, we have people who study earthquakes, landslides, geomagnetism. But the NEIC, the National Earthquake Information Center, is where we study seismicity globally and monitor it. And then as soon as we can report an earthquake, we report its size and its location. So if there were an earthquake somewhere on Earth as we were standing here today, it would be monitored here and then kind of assessed Yeah, that's exactly right. So we have seismic stations recording globally from a variety of different seismic networks, and we ingest that data. And if it's a significant earthquake, so magnitude 5 and larger, we'll report on it within 20 minutes anywhere in the globe. Report to whom? To the public, as well as any interested parties who use that information uh, to try to understand the impact of the earthquake and how to respond to it. 
So while you're busy here talking with me, is there someone monitoring a screen in this building in real time? Right. So we have systems that continually automatically look for earthquakes. And then uh, then we have a team of humans. We have human analysts who work really hard 24-7 on three shifts who will actually look at that information once our automatic systems uh, create an event and then actually publish it to the web with more detailed characterization. Walking around this place, I am just seeing map after map after map, you know, of... of what events that are pretty disturbing in people's lives, but are a part of your daily career in science. Bay Area earthquakes over there. What else? Yeah. So, I mean, not only are we monitoring earthquakes in real time, but we're also creating a catalog of earthquakes, right? So this is a hazard map of the U.S. So what we do is we take all the earthquakes we record, as well as faults that we know about, and we estimate the hazard of seismicity in different locations. So this is a map of the frequency of damaging earthquakes around the U.S., and you'll see... You know, for a lot of the U.S., uh, these lighter colors show that there aren't a lot of earthquakes, but then areas where we have these more red colors, uh, such as California or Alaska, uh, that's where there's higher seismic hazard, and that's where we see more earthquakes. Well, and this is fundamental to why we are talking to you today, which is to ask you about seismicity and faults in Colorado. Indeed, California is different shades of intense red, Colorado only seems to get into light orange. Otherwise, it's yellow, green, and blue. Some white, meaning almost no seismicity on the plains. In general, are we a shaken place? Right. So we don't have seismicity like you see in some areas. Uh, Where we really see high seismic hazard is where we have plate boundaries. So, for example, California, most people have heard about the San Andreas Fault. That marks the plate boundary between the Pacific Plate and the North American Plate. And it really creates a high seismic hazard. There's lots of seismicity there. In Colorado, we don't have any tectonic plate boundaries like that. So we don't see that discrete lineation of seismicity that you would see in other regions. Now, are all faults related to plates? No, they aren't. So we have faults all throughout Colorado. It's just most of them are really small faults. And that's true anywhere in the U.S. There's faults everywhere. Just in most cases, the slip rates are very, very small, and those faults might be very, very small, so you don't see these significant earthquakes. When we have earthquakes away from a plate boundary like that, we refer to them as intraplate earthquakes. So in Colorado, we do have those intraplate earthquakes, um, but they're really, when we look at seismicity and we record it, we see it's dispersed throughout the state. It's dispersed, and what would then, if you can explain this for me in layman's terms, what would trigger... In other words, a Colorado earthquake. And let's talk about natural causes first. We'll get into the idea that people can trigger earthquakes a bit later. Right. So even though we're away from these tectonic plate boundaries, we are still having a stressed crust. So that comes from these plate boundaries. That stress is transmitted into the far away from the plate boundaries, as well as there can be local changes that change the stress within the subsurface. And anytime there's stress placed on a fault, it has the potential to slip. So a fault is just a plane in the earth, and when it slips, we feel an earthquake. What is the biggest recorded earthquake in Colorado history? Uh, So historically, the largest earthquake that we have evidence for was in 1882. It was a magnitude 6.6. But that was before we could actually record 
seismicity on seismographs and actually really accurately detect the location and the size of the earthquake. So for that earthquake, we had to rely on felt reports or what people describe in the shaking to try to estimate where it occurred. Felt reports, that is what people felt. Yeah, exactly. And large reliance on news for that. So what newspapers said about the event. And from the intensity of shaking, we can tell that it occurred somewhere in north central Colorado. And we can also tell that it was around a magnitude six and a half. But it's really, you know, imprecise compared to what we can do today. North Central, what, what would be the closest town that you could pinpoint? Right. So it, we don't have a very good location, but it would be west of Fort Collins. West of Fort Collins. And six and a half, you said, about? But that varies depending on who estimated the size of that. So, you know, we don't really have an accurate estimation of its size. What about in more recent years or days? Yeah, so in the past few decades, the largest earthquake has been a magnitude 5.3 that occurred in 2011. That was southwest of Trinidad. So that was an earthquake where we actually think that it was related to human activity. There's natural seismicity that occurs in that region, but there was also wastewater injection going on, and that event may have been triggered by human activity. Okay, so this is near the New Mexico border in southern Colorado, not far from, I guess, Raton Pass. And it is a segue to the fact that people can trigger earthquakes. That makes me feel incredibly powerful, by the way, William. Yeah, I mean, Colorado actually has one of the richest histories of human-caused earthquakes by wastewater injection. So some people might remember uh, in the 1960s, there's a sequence of earthquakes that occurred in the Denver area, and that was caused by injection at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal. And that was really the first case where we saw wastewater injection causing earthquakes. Wastewater injection, meaning what? Well, it's any water that we people want to get rid of, and they just inject it deep underground to get rid of it. So in modern times, that's mostly related to oil and gas, and it's usually a byproduct of oil and gas extraction. And I know that as well, there was some underground nuclear testing near Rulison, Colorado. Uh, That had some seismicity, I think. Right. So a lot of seismicity, or really seismology as a field, a lot of the development came from monitoring nuclear blasts, because when there is a nuclear explosion or any explosion, it creates seismic waves, and we can record those and estimate the size of an earthquake. You know, Colorado has a lot of areas where we do see these human-induced earthquakes, so the Raton Basin is one of them, and that's an area where we see natural seismicity, too. In Paradox Valley, there's been induced earthquakes since about 1991 from fluid injection from a project from the Bureau of Reclamation. Then we've seen the Denver area earthquakes in the 1960s. In Rangeley, there was actually an experiment uh, where we tested increasing pressure at depth and saw that we could cause earthquakes. And then Greeley, Colorado, more recently, we've seen some small earthquakes induced by fluid injection. So are we smart enough to know how to prevent them when injecting wastewater? Or is that a bit of a crapshoot still? It's a really challenging problem because we know that there's faults in the subsurface, but often we don't know exactly where they are. So Oklahoma is a good example where we saw a lot of earthquakes induced by fluid injection. And we found that we don't really know where all the faults are. There's lots of small faults in the subsurface that just aren't imaged or weren't seismically active prior, so we just don't know they exist. So that is the key here, that if you are injecting where there are faults, that's sort of the magic recipe. Right, exactly. I mean, by definition, an earthquake is occurring on a fault. Uh, So it's just the size of the fault that really controls how large that earthquake could be. I'd like to ask you about a specific experience, a felt experience in Colorado Springs. Shall we go over to your office? That sounds great. 
we walked down a long, empty hallway, empty because when we visited the National Earthquake Information Center in Golden, the vast majority of work was being done remotely in the pandemic. All right, we've had a seat here in your office, which has a mound of what looked like archival earthquake records. You've got a map here, Seismicity of the Earth, 1900 to 2018. And then a a more modern piece of technology, your computer. With this, I'm going to have you help us answer a question from Jennifer Woodall, who lives in Colorado Springs. There are times, particularly in the evenings, when there's a definite trembling. I'll be sitting in bed reading a book, and the book will start to shake. And I want to know what it is. I spoke to a friend who said, oh, it's the trains, because I live a block west of the highway and the railway line. But it's not the trains, because I hear their whistles, and I don't feel the trembling when they whistle. And I don't believe it's semis on the freeway, because I can hear them too. And I don't hear them when this trembling happens. Now, you say the book shakes. Does the house shake? I mean, do you hear, you know, windows rattling or? No, no, it's much more subtle than that. I've also seen when I'm sitting at my desk, I have um, I have a supplemental monitor that's on a stand and I've seen it tremble. Now, could it be anything in the air? I think about how close you are to the Air Force Academy, for instance. Oh, you know, that hadn't entered my mind. Um, Again, the Air Force Academy, I can usually hear the planes, and I don't know what their setup is, but I don't think they go flying around at night after dark much. How long would you say this has plagued you, Jennifer, this question? Oh, ever since I moved into this apartment four years ago. William, do you think she's feeling earthquakes? in the heart of Colorado Springs? Uh, There is seismicity throughout the state, so it's always possible if you're in Colorado that you could be feeling an earthquake. Um, Here on the map, I have a map of all the earthquakes that we've cataloged in Colorado, and we can zoom in and look at Colorado Springs, and we can see that there's not a lot of seismicity in the area around Colorado Springs. Anytime anyone feels an earthquake or thinks they feel an earthquake, they can report it on our website in a Did You Feel It report. And then we'll have analysts who will actually look for it and see if it's associated with an event. I see three circles that are mostly in the foothills west of Colorado Springs. What do those represent? Right. So these are earthquakes. But this is a catalog that I pulled up from decades of seismicity. So we see that there's not a lot of earthquakes uh, over decades. And some of these are more recent. There are a few earthquakes that occurred near Ellicott, Colorado. Um, in 2018, we see here, one in 2020. So there, there are earthquakes in the region. That's east on the plains east of Colorado Springs. Right. But these are all very small earthquakes, which uh, in many cases probably would not be felt or at least not widely felt. Uh, one thing that stood out to me about those comments is that she reported feeling earthquakes at the same time at night. Earthquakes are random. They can occur at any point of time. So if you're feeling something and it's occurring around the same time of day, it's Unlikely that that's an earthquake, because you wouldn't see that sort of temporal pattern. Okay, so you think she might want to keep digging. Yeah, I I think it's likely that it could be something else. But that said, I mean, you know, you could report that you felt something that you think might be an earthquake, and someone will look into it. And if they find an earthquake, it will be posted on our website. 
Have you been in an earthquake, William? I have never felt an earthquake, ever. It's, it's an embarrassment <laughs> being a seismologist, but I would love to feel one sometime. Unfortunately, Colorado is probably not the best place to get the chance to feel an earthquake. Which leads naturally to the question of why a national earthquake center is in Colorado. Maybe the best place to have an earthquake center is far from a lot of seismic activities. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a long history for why the Earthquake Information Center, the National Earthquake Information Center, is in Colorado. But you're certainly right that being away from significant seismic hazard is an important part of having an operation that can continue running in the event of an earthquake. Thank you so much for answering these questions for us. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. Seismologist William Yek answering a Colorado Wonders question in April about earthquakes in our state. If you have something you'd like us to check out... Enter your question at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. When we come back, marking a century of LGBTQ experience through song. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado is famous for its natural beauty including the iconic Maroon Bells. The towering mountain peaks overlook a sea of quivering aspens and a stunning lake. Look around, you see why people love it. That's why they come. The claim is they're loving it to death. How land managers are trying to protect Colorado's natural wonders while keeping them accessible to the public. Story and lots of pictures at CPR.org. This weekend, the Denver Gay Men's Chorus wraps up its 40th season with a production that spans a century of the LGBTQ experience. The show, called Unbreakable, brings both tears and laughter. Are you gay? Are you fay? Are you belting out Broadway? Do you saunter and sashay your way through life? Are you queer, Johnny Weir? Choosing bubbly over beer. Do you self-describe as husband and as wife? Words have come, words have gone, but this gay one lingers on. For it sings a song of promise to the crowd. Let's be bold. Let's be great. Let's be anything but straight. And get straight to telling you just why we're proud. The composer is Andrew Lippa, who works on Broadway. The Denver Chorus co-commissioned a piece with nine other ensembles, including the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. That's who's singing here. The production focuses on historical figures like Cyril Wilcox. He attended Harvard in the 1920s, and the school put him on trial, a secret tribunal created to expunge homosexuals from the school. Here's the DGMC's artistic director, James Knapp. I think we've all been in that situation where, meaning we as gay people, have been threatened to be outed by someone. But this was a particularly powerful story for me just a systematic way of exposing and expelling homosexual students, faculty and staff. He was such a young man and he had his whole life ahead of him. And, you know, ultimately he was found, quote unquote, guilty of homosexual practices and was released from the university after the president had coerced him into writing a letter to his parents explaining what had happened. So Cyril went home ultimately shamed by his family, 
and he committed suicide. And it's so tragic, but those kind of stories happen all the time with GLBTQ youth, even today. Why does it feel like I'm already dead? Why does it feel like I'll never get out of this place? Never get out of this place. Why does it feel like my choices have led, led to this moment where nothing is clear? Nothing is here. In Unbreakable, there are elements of classical, gospel, rock, and Broadway ballads. The number All People tells the story of Bayard Rustin, the openly gay civil rights leader who organized the 1963 March on Washington. All people are one, no matter where you're from, no matter what you look like. What do you look like? All people are one, black and white, dark and light, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing now. Artistic director James Knapp hopes that audiences will be both entertained and educated. Because at the end of the day, you're not going to be reading about these individuals and some of the historical events in American history books taught in high schools. And if we don't share our stories musically, if we don't share our stories through art, through literature, it will be lost. And if we drive that through our mission, we will not fail. premiere of Unbreakable takes place Friday and Saturday at the King Center on Denver's Auraria campus. It coincides with the 40th anniversary of the Denver Gay Men's Chorus. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our chorus. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News in KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.